And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We now enter the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, or the sermon letter to the Hebrews. And this morning, before we read, what we read is going to feel a little bit different. If you've been with us for these weeks, uh, as we've studied and looked at the book of Hebrews, things are going to feel a little bit different. And remember, this is a letter, and you're going to feel the author who has really been heavy in explanation. I think you would all agree with that. He has been heavy in talking about the priesthood, Old Testament characters, bloodshed, a lot of heavy theological teaching. Now he's going to have another pastoral moment where he gets very practical in talking to these people. Some commentators have referred to this portion, because it's a letter, almost as a type of postscript, a PS. Uh, to me, as I read this and as you hear it, it might sound like this. If you've been a parent who has left your children at home with a babysitter, you know what it is to um, say, now here, don't forget to do this, and here's a phone number you can call, and look here for this, and don't forget to lock the doors. Just a, a bullet list of things that are priorities, things that are important. And so what we read here is really a type of postscript of pastoral application that all speak to the character of who these people are supposed to be in the world, how they're supposed to live. So in that way, it's very practical, and it will challenge all of us as we consider it this morning. So give your attention to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. For we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
You feel the bullet list. You feel all these ideas coming from all over the place. Pastoral care and concern for these people that they would live like the people of God. Let's pray that we would receive it in that same spirit. Lord, this morning, would you show us what your word has for us? And would you grow us into such a practical faith that we would see that who we are and what we do really does matter to you? Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Character traits. Character traits. If you have ever interviewed for a job, or maybe you've been the one doing the interviewing for a job, you know that there are traits, characteristics that you're looking for in the kind of person that your company would hire or that you would hire. Or if you've ever dated someone or courted someone or had a a parent speaking in your ear, you've heard the emphasis of characteristics and traits that should be there in someone worthy of your time and worthy of your relationship. Character, traits, characteristics. Those are the kinds of things that the author to Hebrews is emphasizing for this church. So what are those desirable traits? What are the desirable characteristics that the author says should be true of Christians and of a church? Well, he's going to give us a lot of them. You heard them already. So really the passage I'm going to break down into two pieces this morning. First is the character, the characteristics, the traits that God says He wants to be true of His people. That would be us. And then secondly, it's a glimpse into the character of our God that the author references. And I want us to see the beauty of that and how far short every one of us falls from it. So first, the character of Christians. Who we are and how we are to live. These are issues of communal behavior and ethics. These are the issues of our reputation and what we're known for. Or what our reputation should be and what we should be known for. Uh, Some of you, many of you are familiar with online apps on your phone or on your computer. Things like Yelp, where through crowdsourcing you can get information on something like a restaurant or a hotel. And you can find out what the crowd thinks about that restaurant or that hotel. You can learn characteristics that people have found to be true or not true. You can find out if the food is good, if it's clean, if there's good service, right? There's reputation that is known by everyone and everything. And so, not that there's a Yelp review on churches. Perhaps there is. I don't know. I don't think I want to know. But that's what's going on here, is what, what are these people to be known for? And therefore, what are we to be known for? So he gives us several. First, in verse 1, he says to continue in brotherly love. Or the passage I read from the NIV says, continue to love one another as brothers and sisters. Now that is an effort to make sure 
in our contemporary culture that no one feels left out. Of course, we've said before in weeks previous that we are all brothers in Christ. Okay, so that's an effort to make sure no one feels left out. But no one is left out. But the real emphasis is this thing called brotherly love. Now, I've said before, when we talk about the fatherhood of God in the church, um, how God has revealed Himself as a father, oftentimes that's hard for people to understand given their experience with their earthly fathers. There's a hurdle to be cleared in order to hear it as good news. So I, I suppose the same thing is true in talking about brotherly love in the church. What if your experience with brotherly love has been poor? Well, you need to hear it for what it is, that the beauty of it, the good news of it, the ideal brother, just like God is the ideal father, is what is being referenced. So brotherly love for you growing up may have been fist fights and black eyes and wrestling matches, but what the author has here in mind is people who really care for each other and the well-being of one another, a close-knit community that truly cares for one another. So in that way, he says, continue in brotherly love. Or we would say in the NIV, love each other as brothers and sisters. Treat each other like good family. Good family. Well, as you consider the history of the church, you do have to wonder, well, what kind of brothers does our history look like? Is it more fistfights and black eyes in the history of the church? Or are there some more positive moments? Well, let's be honest, there's some of both. There's, there's a lot of one, probably more than the other. But I do have a positive example for you, and I've shared this with you before in a different context. But it comes from the 4th century in the Roman Empire when famine and war and plague had struck the empire and a particular city. And the response of the people to famine and war and plague was to get out of there, to leave the city. So many fled. But in history, we have writing, not by Christians, but by historians and even a non-Christian, who remarked on what happened in that city when everybody fled. A, church, a historian named Eusebius records that as many people fled, there were Christians that remained. And why did they remain? He says, to care for all those who were left behind, who couldn't flee. They couldn't flee war, they couldn't flee famine, they couldn't flee the plague. And it was the compassion the brotherly love of some Christians that said, we'll stay, we'll tend to those who are weak, and we'll share our food with them. Well, that's a positive story of brotherly love. I wish that was representative of how every one of us is and the giving nature of our spirits, but it tends to not be so. A few decades later, uh, an emperor named Julian the Apostate he wrote of Christians a few decades after this and said this, When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by pagan priests, then I think the Galileans, the Christians, observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. 
they supported not only their poor, not just fellow Christians, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. You hear what he's saying? He said these Christians, they showed compassion not just to their fellow Christians. They showed it to pagans who lived among them. And Julian the apostate who had left the faith was like, they're making us look bad. So the power of brotherly love is a powerful testimony. And the author to the Hebrews says, continue in that kind of love. Continue in brotherly love. And here's where we need to apply the sermon to every one of us and ask ourselves, am I more characterized by brotherly love or brotherly apathy? That's the tension in the sinful heart. Am I loving the brothers? Am I loving my neighbor? Or am I apathetic to those people around me who bother me, irritate me, get in my way, and are unhelpful to my purposes? Right? That's the tension. That's the challenge that's put before us. We're called to brotherly love, not brotherly apathy. Secondly, he says to practice hospitality in verse 2. And there's this mysterious statement about a mysterious passage in the Old Testament in Genesis 18. I won't take the time to read it. But where three mysterious figures appear, and it appears that hospitality was shown to angels. And wouldn't we love to just explore that and speculate what in the world is going on there? But of course, we would miss his point altogether. His point is to practice hospitality there's often more than meets the eye. One commentator on this, I thought helpfully said, you know, it may be when you're sitting in church next to a stranger, it's possible, according to the text, it's possible that person is an angel. It's possible. Can't rule it out. But he said, that's not the point. What you are sitting next to, most certainly, is one created in the image of God who is worthy of dignity and value and respect. And so show hospitality for that reason, that you see the value and the dignity and the worth of the human being that God has put around you. Hospitality is an important subject, and I think often in the South we think that we do it well, but maybe what we do in the South is more entertaining than it is hospitality. But there is powerful ministry. Just as there's powerful ministry in brotherly love, so there is in the art of hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield says this on the subject of hospitality. She says, Our unbelieving neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, in food, in friendship, in child care, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. And there is a lot of truth there. Some of you can tell stories about great neighbors, faithful neighbors who loved you, included you, welcomed you. Some of you, I know, can tell stories about how neighbors invited you to this church. And you came through the doors of the church because someone neighbored you well. That's the art of hospitality. 
including people, welcoming people. And I would say to you, as I've, I've said to others through the years, whatever you have, whatever God has given you, it's a gift to be used to practice hospitality. It might be your dining room table. It might be the recipes in your great-grandma's recipe box. It might be your patio, your yard, your barn. Whatever it is, use it and practice hospitality. I was reminded as I thought about that this week, that when I was in St. Louis, when Marie and I were in St. Louis, in seminary, uh, one day, for whatever reason, I thought, you know what? We've got this basement in this apartment we live in. I want to build a ping pong table. I did, I've never built anything in my life at that point. And to this point, not much that would stand for very long. But I did. I took my little pickup truck and I went and I got a little bit of lumber and all the things necessary. I came back and I built a ping pong table in our basement with the thought of, let's have people over. Let's just create a sense to gather people and get to know people and enjoy people. I tell you that story because I found out just not long ago that that ping pong table is still there. And there are seminary students who moved into that apartment who used it for the very same reason. I don't know why I had a, a notion. I don't play a lot of ping pong. Never have. But I was like, let's... Let's use what we have. Let's gather people. And for those of them who know this, um, so it was Jonathan Cook who years later would move into the same apartment I was in and use that ping pong table to gather people in the same basement. Hospitality. Use what you have. You may have all kinds of things to use, or you may have very little. But whatever you have... The Christian says, how can this be used to include and welcome others? It may be a hobby. It may have an, a, a, be an interest of yours. But you can include people. Practice brotherly love and hospitality. Thirdly, he says, remember those who are imprisoned and suffering. Now, probably what he's referring to here is this. It's not just random prisoners. He's probably talking about fellow Christians who've been wrongly imprisoned and who are suffering for their faith. Because remember, these people are receiving pressure and are thinking about abandoning the Christian faith. Their livelihoods are at stake. It's become very hard to be a Christian. And they're thinking, wouldn't it just be easier to go back to Judaism and to practice religion as we knew it before Jesus? He's probably referencing here, don't forget those faithful followers of Jesus who've been wrongly imprisoned and are suffering. Regard yourself as suffering with them and tend to their needs. But even if it's not that, we're to be a people who remember those who are imprisoned, those who are suffering. Remember Jesus' words in the Gospels. When you tend to those who are imprisoned, when you, intend to, when you tend to those who suffer, he says, you are tending to me. And so the Christian has this enlarged heart that thinks to care for and to do the things that other people wouldn't have time or interest in doing. 
And that's what brotherly love, hospitality, remembering the imprisoned. It's what that looks like. Jesus said in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we're examining our own hearts, our own character, our own practice in daily life. And Jesus said we're to be known by brotherly love, practicing hospitality, remembering those who are imprisoned. How are you doing on your heart exam, by the way? We can do more, we can do better for the sake of who we've been called and empowered to be. Fourthly, he says this. Now he's going to give us a little teaching and a little reminder. He says to honor marriage and to keep sexuality holy within it. Now let's be honest. Every culture, everywhere, at every time, struggles with the subject of marriage and sexuality and holiness. And it seems like it's never been more true than it is in our culture today. But it's always been true. There have always been challenges to God's pattern and God's design, God's definitions and God's will for the holiness of marriage and family and sexuality. I just don't feel like I have to, to argue that very much with, with anyone who has categories for what the Bible says. So thinking about that this week, I saw all these examples all around me. So forgive the simplicity of this. But I'm thinking about how since Genesis 1 and 2, the pattern that God has given creation has always been male and female as their kinds and that they would come together and form a family and that that is the structure by which society, by His pattern and design, is created to exist. And so I'm out walking on my property doing middle-aged man exercise and I go out the door and in my carport, I think I've told you this before, I've got barn swallows. And for years I would chase them away because they make such a mess as they build their, their nests in their corners. Then I had the experience a few years ago where I decided to research them. And what the internet told me is that these couples, these male and female couples, every year fly to Argentina. And now they're coming back to Due West to my carport, setting up family, setting up shop and, and reproducing. And that amazed me. So I quit trying to get rid of my barn swallows. But you see that male and female pattern. And then one morning, I was, as I was walking around the property, we have killdeer, which are birds. They're shore birds. And they like to, they put their nests on the ground, on hard packed ground. And I, I started to research those a couple of years ago. And you know, it's male and female by their kinds. And what I love about the killdeer is that mama sits in the nest. She lays her eggs, but daddy killdeer, if we can call him that, he's always away from the nest. He's off to work. Well, what's he doing? He's on the ground watching out for predators. And if you ever get near a killdeer's nest, which they're on my walking pattern, so most days I see this, you know what daddy killdeer does? 
He walks away from the nest and he pretends to have a broken wing. And he'll fluff up and he'll, he'll make himself look wounded for the sake of protecting mama bird and the eggs. And you see this provide, protect, care for pattern and image of daddy bird loving mommy bird and baby birds. It's a pattern. It exists. It's everywhere. And then for the third ornithology example of the morning, same thing, I'm out walking and I see a bunny rabbit. We have bunny rabbits that are showing up more and more now. And this bird dive bombs the bunny rabbit early in the morning. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I notice a baby bird jumping around, not able to fly yet. And so I think it was a jaybird. Jaybird mama is protecting baby bird. And maybe it was jaybird dad. I assume too much there. I'm not sure. But it was a parental bird protecting baby bird, dive-bombing the rabbits. And then as I went out to my car, it dive-bombed me. <laughs> there's pattern. There's structure. There's beauty to it. And what the author to Hebrews is saying is that pattern exists for us. Honor marriage. Honor family. And keep the marriage bed pure. Keep it holy in a culture that is perverse, that sexually just gives license. Love and let love. Do what you want to is what the culture says. And God's Word says, no, there's pattern, there's structure, there's design, and it's beautiful and it's awesome. God's people have to protect it, He says. Let it be true of you that you are honoring God and His gift of marriage and His gift of sexuality. Amen? Amen. Fifthly, he says to be content. God's people are not to be lovers of money or of possessions. Now, we tend to be the opposite of that. We tend to be pretty malcontent. We're pretty able to compare what we have to what others have, to become envious of God's gifts to others, they're not the same as God's gifts to us, and we can, we can practice envy of wanting or wishing for something God was not pleased to give us. And the author to Hebrews says God's people are not to be that way. Not in the church. You need to remember that God is sufficient. He is all that you need. You don't need what your neighbor has. You need what God has given you. So don't be a malcontent. Learn to be content with God's gifts to you. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment is not by addition but by subtraction. Seeking to add a thing will not bring contentment. Instead, subtracting from your desires until you are satisfied only with Christ, that brings contentment. And we can say amen to that, but that's a hard message for us to hear as prosperous Americans living in the culture that we live in. 
We always think that the bigger house, the nicer clothes, the more expensive car equals happiness and contentment. But it never does, and we know that. And we have to learn that lesson over and over and over and over again. But contentment, godly contentment, it comes from subtraction, not by addition. It's a hard word, and the author of Hebrews reminds us of it. Then he says this, skipping down to verse 7. He tells us to remember and imitate our faithful leaders. Actually, he says to imitate their faith. He doesn't say to imitate their behavior. He says to imitate their faith, to practice their faith. And probably what he's referring to here are those early messengers of the gospel that came to them, that convinced them of the truth of the gospel. Now they're at that point where some are thinking, well, maybe I want to go back. Maybe I want to abandon that. And he's saying, no, remember when you heard and the people you heard it from. They are trustworthy and they are true and they stuck by their faith. Imitate that faith. Be faithful. Plot along to the glory of God. And then finally, concerning their faith and their practice, their character, he says this. Be a people that do not follow strange teaching or that drift away from the gospel of grace. And there you see that pastoral concern that he's repeated over and over again. is Don't drift. Don't be a people who drift from the truth of the gospel. Don't be led astray by old teaching or new teaching, but hold fast to what you know has been true. And so there you have it, characteristics of what God would have be true of His people. That we would continue in brotherly love, practice hospitality, remember those imprisoned who are suffering as if we ourselves were doing the suffering. To honor, to protect marriage, and to keep sexuality holy within the confines of marriage. To be content with what we have. To not be a malcontent, grumbling about what we don't have in this world. And to remember those who taught us the truth of the gospel, those we received it from, to exercise a faith like theirs and to not drift away by any new teaching, by any old teaching, but to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. That's what he says. That's a picture. It's a verbal picture of who we are to be as the church. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us, very briefly, a snapshot of the character of God Himself. And it's very beautiful, and though this is the brief part of the sermon, I don't want you to hear it as insignificant. But listen again to what He says. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. He says, God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence... The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And then in verse 8, this beautiful summary. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what does all of that mean? Well, in three words, it means that in God and God alone, there is a consistency... There is a constancy and there is a commitment. Those are the things that summarize the character 
of our holy God. He is consistent through and through. He's constant. He's unfailing in who He is and what He does. And He has a commitment to His promises and to His people that never fails. Now I ask you, what does this world know about any of that? Consistency, constancy, commitment. I mean, this sounds too good to be true. But it's not too good to be true. It's the good news. It's the gospel as it's been given to us. These three traits, these three characteristics of God that He meets perfectly. Meanwhile, those other seven traits and characteristics of God's people, no, we don't meet those perfectly. We are inconsistent. We're not constant. And our commitment is weak. And so when we compare those two, our attributes and God's holy attributes, really we're left with this question. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is like Him? Who is consistent? Who is constant? Who has commitment? There is no one like the Lord. That's His point. And so how could you consider walking away from the one who has proven himself to be consistent, constant, and fully committed as your helper. And that's his pastoral application to these people. How could you walk away from him and go back to a faith that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as your high priest and as your perfect Savior? Who is like the Lord our God? His salvation is so great, it's so full, it's so free. The Lord is our salvation. He's calling us to be a unique people. We're to be holy. Those seven attributes matter. But there is no one like the Lord. Let's give thanks to Him. Our Father in heaven, we give you a humble and hearty thanks that when we fall so far short of the character that we're to have, when we're apathetic towards our brothers and sisters, when we don't practice hospitality, when we're self-centered, when we emphasize the individual over community, Lord, we fall so short of who we're supposed to be. But we give You thanks and praise for the good news of who You are in Your perfect righteousness and character. Strong to save consistent and constant and committed to Your promises for the good of Your church. So Lord, would You warm our hearts even as we sing of Your greatness. Would You send us into the week ahead remembering who we're called to be, but remembering also who You are perfectly in Jesus. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.